the Bible Study Podcast, episode 94. Today, the Bible Study Podcast goes back to Hebrews, looking at chapter 6. Welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. Some apologies are due for some confusion that I may have caused. I mislabeled the last episode as episode 95. We haven't gotten there just yet. Jumping into Hebrews 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of the repentance from acts that lead to death, and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. Now, the first thing I would recommend is whenever you start a paragraph in the Bible and it starts with, therefore, is pausing at that point and going back and seeing what it's there for, going back and seeing what the previous thought was. So I'm going to read a little bit of the end of Hebrews 5 again, even though we did that last week. So Hebrews 5 ended with this paragraph. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And again, we talked last week about the writer of Hebrews wanting the people to move on from this elementary teaching, and that it is by use that we are trained to distinguish good from evil, not by knowledge, but it is by practice or by obedience. But then this particular paragraph here in Hebrews 6 tells us what some of those elementary teachings are that the writer doesn't really want to go into detail with. And let's go through those briefly. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Like the baptism of John the Baptist, often a preaching will start with a need for repentance, a need to to turn around, literally, repentance to do a 180 and face back towards God. And so this is something we shouldn't have to keep talking about because we should be training ourselves to understand the difference between good and evil. And so we shouldn't have to keep coming back to this point. And faith in God, and obviously the next step here is turn around, come back to God, and put your faith in God instead of wherever else you've been putting your faith. Instructions about baptism, and then the next step obviously is believe and be baptized, is what the scripture says. So we repent, we believe, and then baptism is the means by which we enter into God's family, and we are adopted by God. The laying on of hands, I don't know whether this is the laying on of hands that often happens at baptism, where we're talking about blessing and we're talking about stirring up the Holy Spirit, or whether this is a laying on of hands for those who are sick or laying on of hands for those who are being appointed into ministry. But those are all sort of normal parts of the Christian experience or should be normal parts of the Christian experience or the faith journey. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And then obviously, as we get started with our faith, there's an understanding that the retirement plan is the resurrection of the dead and avoiding eternal judgment. So those are things that are sort of basics in the faith that the writer doesn't want to go over again and again and again because he wants to move on to other things. And going on to other things, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. This is clearly a controversial passage because there is great debate about once saved, always saved, or what is the writer implying here, that if we are Christians and we fall away, that there is no chance for us to come back again? That seems to be the way it's read, and yet that's inconsistent with certain other passages. So let's see if we can break this down and understand a little more. One of the things that it's saying is that as we come to faith, we should be enlightened, tasting the heavenly gift. What is the heavenly gift? I think that what we're looking at is a foretaste of what it will be like in heaven. I would hope that would be the love predominantly that is supposed to exist within our churches, that should exist within the faith and within the people of God. Also, the heavenly gift could be the Holy Spirit, except that that's mentioned separately here, and who have shared in the Holy Spirit who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. The first part of that is relatively obvious, the goodness of the word of God, that there is that there is goodness here, that there is both power, but there is also just wholesomeness. There is, there is things that are good for us in the word of God. And then the powers of the coming age, I believe, to me at least, implies that this is not just an intellectual exercise, that we are talking about issues of power. Who has power in our life? Is it God or is it Satan? Is it God or do we put our power in our fleshly desires? And so as we come to God, there is intended to be, through the Holy Spirit, power. And so what it's saying is, if you have all of that and then you turn your back, what the writer says is, if they fall away at that point, it's impossible to be brought back to repentance. That's a tough one. I certainly think of people who I know who have, I think, had those things at the beginning there, who have had faith, who have fallen away and then returned to faith. This is one of those hard things. I'm not sure that I would use the word impossible, but very difficult for sure. If we know all of these things, if we've truly had a real experience with God, not some sort of weakened, watered-down version that might inoculate us from real faith. That's difficult then to turn away from that and then to come back. The writer continues, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop, useful for those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, I think it's safe to say here we haven't moved on to land management policy. Instead, we're still within the same framework of the conversation. And so we're talking, I believe, here about people. And we're using an analogy of land, good land and bad land, based on what it produces. That good land is the land that produces good things, and bad land is the land that produces bad things or worthless things. And in the end, it will be burned. In the end, it is cursed. And I think that this is put in here as a warning and an analogy that look to see what we are producing. 
Jesus said in the Gospels that by their fruit you will know them. That you go to a tree and when you find apples on it, you say this is an apple tree. Well, with Christians, when you find love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control on them, the fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians, then you say they are a Christian. Their fruit shows them to be that. And continuing on, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So the writer pauses to say here, but not you. We've seen your work. We've seen your fruit. It's good. But continue on in that that you have done. Continue on and continue to be faithful. And then continuing on in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. We're entering in a section here that's going to talk about promise. And if you ever saw the movie, Oh God, where George Burns, who's playing God, gets to swear in the court, he says, so help me me. And that's what he's saying is as God swore promise to Abraham, he swore by himself because there is nothing greater. And God keeps his promises is really what this is the start of a section on. And it says, men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that, by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So it says here that God swore an oath to Abraham on our behalf so that we could have hope. And he uses that symbol that the church has used for 2,000 years for hope, which is an anchor. Hope is that thing that keeps us fast, that keeps us held in place when the storms rage around us. And that God swore an oath to Abraham because he had intended the people of God to be encouraged and to have hope. And then that talks about entering into that holiest of holies, where Jesus entered on our behalf as the high priest and the order of Melchizedek, both king and priest. And we talked about that in the last two episodes. So with that, I think we'll bring this episode of the Bible Study Podcast to a close. If you have any questions, feel free to send an email to host at thebiblestudypodcast.com or leave a comment at thebiblestudypodcast.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse. 
guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.